If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 13. We're in Acts chapter 13 this morning. We'll be looking at our next section as we're working uh, verse by verse through this incredible narrative of the early church, the book of Acts. The sermon title for this morning is The Mission Must Go On. The mission must go on. Acts chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 25 together this morning. So we read what Luke writes. As Luke wrote the book of Acts 13, 13, here we go. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and from the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of whose whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to read our next passage here in Acts chapter 13. And we're praying that as we look at Paul and Barnabas, as they continue in their mission, that we would also continue in our mission. Lord, we know that you've called us out of darkness into light and you've set us apart and you've called us to be a witness for you. And no matter what kind of hardship or difficulty that we face, I pray that we would always, as we see in our text this morning, just return back to your word back to the history of redemption, back to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, back to his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, and that we would bring a message of hope and a message of salvation to a lost and dying world. Thank you for the joy of studying your word this morning. I pray that it would benefit us greatly as we desire to learn and apply it in our lives today and this week, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. David Livingston was a Scottish missionary that many of you probably heard of, also an explorer, and he spent 33 years in the heart of Africa. 
He had a real passion to reach native tribes throughout the continent of Africa with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he did that, as he gave his life to that mission, he endured much suffering as he labored there, again, to to spread the gospel, to open up a, a continent, if you will, for the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this godly missionary, David Livingston, has gone down in history as one of the greatest missionaries ever known. He once remarked this. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk, when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Now what an amazing quote, right? This man spent his whole life foregoing the conveniences of the modern world to share the gospel with people in uh, Africa and when he was asked about it, he said, it's no sacrifice. It was my joy, it was my honor, it was my privilege to give my life for such a cause. What a powerful perspective from such a faithful and fearless missionary. Now, of course, we know that doing mission work is, in some ways, a sacrifice. He's given us the right perspective. Hey, it's no sacrifice because I did it as unto the Lord and what a joy it was, but we know that still there would have been hard days and difficulties about traveling to a foreign country in order to connect with the people and to share the gospel with them. I mean, there's, there's difficulties, right? There's languages to learn. There's new customs to adapt to. There's new foods to try, new challenges to face, and new opportunities to live by faith. I mean, I've done a lot of short-term missions throughout my life, and two challenges I've faced when I do short-term missions a lot of times might just simply come down to the idea of travel and the idea of food. Uh, As Americans, we get accustomed to a certain cuisine of uh, things that are familiar to our palate and when you travel to other countries sometimes it can be adventurous and you taste something that you like and sometimes it's not so good you know but you got to just deal with it because you're on the mission trip for the Lord right and you try to learn that idea of flexibility I remember these two challenges of food and travel affected me on that mission trip to Brazil I think I mentioned last week that in my college years I spent five weeks on the Amazon traveling up and down on a riverboat and sharing the gospel with various local indigenous tribes they are in the state of Amazonas uh, at, the, at the northern part of, of, of Brazil and I remember uh, one night uh, we were having dinner with the villagers uh, right there on the shore of the Amazon and they served us what they were offering to us was their best offer of a big pot of chicken stew 
And I remember when we had arrived at that village, seeing a lot of little scrawny chickens, you know, running around as we're playing soccer and interacting with the group uh, there and the villagers. And little did I know that those little scrawny chickens were going to be dinner that night in in a stew. And it was literally like in a black pot, you know, with bubbling water and steam coming off of it. And they scoop our bowls into this chicken stew and start serving us. And when I first tasted it, I'm like, this isn't too bad. You know, it's like chicken stew has a pretty good broth flavor to it. And then all of a sudden, I, with my spoon, I pull up a chicken foot. And it's literally like the foot. Like, you know, I'm like, chicken, I'm like, chicken foot? Like, there's no meat on this foot. And then I go in again, and I pull out a chicken beak. And it's like the beak of the chicken. I'm like, what in the world? You know, so I'm just saying, like, when you're in different places, you know, of course, they gave us their very best. You don't want to waste anything, right? You give your very best to your guests who came there. On that same trip, you know, I told, to, told you that food can be challenging. Well, just travel can be challenging. You know, they don't have a lot of Teslas in third world countries. Uh, I don't drive a Tesla here, but maybe one day. All right, maybe one day. Uh, so, but the idea of traveling, when we got to Brazil, we got on a river boat, and we were going to travel about 24 hours from Manaus, where we flew into, to a much more rural area. So we purchased some hammocks, and when we got on the river boat, we hung our hammocks on the dock there in the sleeping area. And then uh, we travel uh, you know, through the evening, and then it was time to go to bed. So everybody goes, and they jump in their hammock. And it's kind of interesting because there's just like no privacy. You're in your hammock. They have all kinds of shapes of hammocks. They have big, large hammocks for a whole family. They have single hammocks for a, 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 a single individual if you're not married yet. They had couple hammocks, the love seat hammock over here. And there's like all these people in these hammocks. And we're traveling down on this riverboat. And in the middle of the night, there was this awful storm. I'm talking about like what you would see like in the movies, like thunder and lightning and the ship swaying like this. And I wake up and I'm like, what is going on? And I see all the women and the children run around scared deaf scared to death. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And I started looking at the men and they were still asleep in their hammock. And I'm like, well, it must not be too bad yet because the men are still asleep. So I try to go back to sleep. And then a little bit later, I wake up again. And now the men are out of their hammocks. They're all putting on their life jackets. And I'm like, man, we're about to go down right here in the middle of the night on the Amazon River, you know, and uh, we made it through. But I'm just saying, like, it's difficult, right? Traveling in a third world country is a difficult thing. We, we just take for granted the ways that we eat, the way that we travel. I'm thinking about, again, David Livingston, who you know faced immense danger as he traveled throughout Africa and probably ate all kinds of things. But Livingston went on to say that it's all worth it. Right? The difficulties that we face on the mission field are nothing, Livingston was saying, compared to the glory of Christ. And Paul says something similar in Philippians 3, 10 through 12, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, I've already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul's just simply saying, hey, whatever kind of persecution, difficulties, trials, hardship you face, make Christ your own because Christ made you his own. And Paul says so much in the very next chapter of Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content And I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of being content, right? He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's that verse right there in the middle of really a mission report in Philippians. He's just talking about the the struggles he's faced while he's been on his own mission, and yet he can do all things. You can make it through Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at Paul on his first missionary journey and see some of the significant challenges that continue to go before him, and yet at the same time, the mission must go on. God has called us to be his witnesses. God will enable us and he will empower us to do what he's called us to do. And so this morning, I want us to see three headings as we continue to examine Paul's first missionary journey. Number one, we'll look at the defection of John Mark in verse 13. Number two, we'll look at the edification of this city called Antioch in Pisidia. So we're calling it the edification of Pisidian Antioch, verses 14 through 16. And then number three, we'll look at the proclamation of the gospel from the Apostle Paul, verses 17 through 25. Let's start off with number one. Number one, the defection of John Mark. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says... Perhaps he was frustrated with the change in leadership. So his first trial here in this passage of scripture will be John Mark defected, and we're going to talk about some reasons why he may have left them. Let's look at verse 13 where we see that written out for us. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, as we began this first missionary journey a week ago, Acts 13, 1 through 12 is what we looked at. We discussed a call to missions, and we talked about how God set aside Barnabas and Saul to head out from the church of Antioch on that very first missionary journey. They went from Antioch to Seleucia, where they boarded a ship for the island of Cyprus, and they arrived in Salamis, where they proclaimed the word of God in a synagogue. And then they traveled west about 100 miles to Paphos, where they were opposed by Bar-Jesus, who was a false prophet. And after confronting this false prophet and identifying him as a son of the devil and as an enemy of all righteousness, Bar-Jesus was blinded as a part of God's judgment. And when we learned that, then we saw that Sergius Paulus, who was the Roman proconsul of Paphos, that area there of Cyprus, he was converted to Christ after he saw all that happened. And we ended last week in verse 12, where it says, because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And we were reminded that while that miracle was done where the bad guy went blind, it was really the word of God that converted this Roman proconsul to come to be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was a defining moment in the transition of the leadership from Barnabas to Saul. It was kind of like when Bar-Jesus, the false prophet, was confronting them and opposing them and trying to, to fight against them. It was Paul who stood up. And it was Paul who was all of a sudden empowered. And it was Paul who was kind of in the back of listed as number five of those five men all from Antioch. It was always going to be Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And all of a sudden, Paul stood up. And when he confronted that, it was like that was his moment. 
That was his coming out moment where he became now the main apostle, the main leader, the the main person who we see from going here on out. In fact, we see it here in verse 13. We see that change. It says now it's Paul and his companions. Up to this point, it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his companions. And throughout the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas over and over again. Now, we also learned about John Mark. Here we're talking about Mark defected, John Mark defected. We first learned about him in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Look back at that that verse with me, if you will. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. This is where Peter escaped from prison. He was let out by an angel. And that verse tells us, Acts 12, 12, that when he got out of jail, he went to the house of Mary, who was the mother of John, whose other, other name was Mark. So there we said that we're going to call him John Mark. That's what most um, commentaries identify him as so that we separate him from John the Baptist and John the Apostle. We're going to call him John Mark. And so John Mark is the person that we're talking about in in Acts chapter 13, verse 5. Last week, we saw that John Mark was actually on this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. While the Holy Spirit set aside Barnabas and Saul, they added to their group John Mark, and he was going to be this younger apprentice who was going to travel with them. And so John Mark, from last week's reading or the first 12 verses of chapter 13, it was John Mark who would have accompanied them to Cyprus. John Mark would have been there when the word of God was proclaimed in that, in that synagogue in Salamis. John Mark was there in Paphos when Bar-Jesus was defeated and when the proconsul was converted. And now in verse 13, that Paul and his companions, they've now set sail from Paphos and they've traveled some 200 miles north and have come to Perga, verse 13 says, which is in Pamphylia. Perga was the capital of Pamphylia, which was a Roman province there in Asia Minor. Well, now that we're fully caught up kind of on our, our, our uh, geography here and who's, who's who, John Mark, this missionary apprentice, has now abandoned this outreach effort of Paul and Barnabas, and he has returned home to Jerusalem. And we've got to ask the question, why? Why was John Mark with them? Why is he no longer with them? Why did he leave? Well, let me give you at least five suggested reasons. The first one you've already filled in the blank for, we're talking about this first reason why John Mark may have left was perhaps he was frustrated by the change of leadership. We had learned a few weeks ago that from Colossians chapter four, verse 10, it does tell us that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. And so the fact that John Mark is kin to Barnabas, it may be that he's frustrated by this change of leadership because he had that family connection, a familiarity, if you will, with Barnabas. And now Saul, or Paul now that he's called, is completely someone else. And maybe it just didn't fit well. Maybe John Mark just didn't feel well with, with Paul's leadership style. I mean, Paul was most likely way more direct. He led with strength and vigor while Barnabas is known as being more gentle and probably had a more calming demeanor, maybe John Mark just didn't adjust well to that strong leadership style. A a second hypothesis, I'm gonna give you five reasons why John Mark may have defected. A second thought may be, and, and be there in your outline, perhaps he was uncomfortable with the focus on the Gentiles. Perhaps he was uncomfortable 
with the focus on the Gentiles. This new emphasis of the mission trip is going to show that while they still started with Jews in the synagogue, they're definitely going into Gentile areas and they're going to be evangelizing more Gentiles. And that may have been too much of an adjustment for a Palestinian Jew like John Mark. Other Palestinian Jews struggled with this, like the ones in Acts 11, verses 1 through 4, who questioned Peter as to why he accepted Cornelius and the other Gentiles when Peter was sent to that house. And, and they, they got on to Peter for doing that until Peter said, hey, that was the Lord. The Holy Spirit did that. It wasn't me. That was the Lord. And so we understand that some of the Jews are still struggling with this. And Paul even refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11, verse 13. And so maybe this focus on the Gentiles is a little bit more than what Mark was interested in. It was a little bit more than what he could handle. That's a second proposed reason why he defected. A third reason why John Mark defected could have been perhaps he was afraid. Perhaps he was afraid of the dangerous journey. I mean, verse 14, it says they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So this verse is talking about how the missionary journey is now going on from Perga in Pamphylia to Antioch in Pisidia. Please note that this is not the Antioch in Syria from which the mission trip started. So this is a different Antioch, a smaller Antioch up in the mountains there in Pamphylia. And this is a, the area where Paul and Silas are now, or Paul and Barnabas rather, are now headed out to. And so this, was a, this one was located, this particular Antioch in Pisidia was located again north of the island of Cyprus in the area of Galatia. And the journey from Perga to Antioch would have been an arduous one. The trail was difficult and dangerous. It wound its way through the rugged Taurus Mountains, clinging to cliffs and ascending to dizzying heights. Travelers also had to cross, uh, to, had to go across the turbulent, flood-prone Cestrus and Eurymedon rivers. And the Taurus Mountains were notorious for bandits and waiting to, uh, to, to raid oncoming sojourners. And this may have been what Paul even referred to when he talks about a lot of the difficulties he faced in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, when he said that he had been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Again, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six cites all of these difficulties that Paul faced. And some of that could have been on the road from where he was there in Perga to going up to this Pisidian Antioch. And so this could be enough to keep any novice back from the kind of dangerous territory that Paul and Barnabas were heading into next. Or perhaps a fourth reason why John Mark defected could have been that he was concerned about his own physical health. He was concerned about his own physical health. There is some evidence that Paul became quite ill while in Perga, possibly with malaria, as the city of Perga was subject to malarial infections. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4.13, we know that Paul faced some kind of illness because he writes there in Galatians 4.13 and 14, he says, now you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. So some would say, well, he had some type of lingering illness. We don't know what it was. It might have been malaria. Could have been something else. But it could be 
that if John Mark saw Paul struggling with this illness, and if it was malaria, he may have said, you know what, I'm not going to continue in this kind of outreach because my own physical health is now something to be concerned about. Another possible reason, this is number five. Again, these are all hypotheses of why John Mark may have left. Number five, perhaps he was homesick. Perhaps he was homesick. Some think that John Mark may have been homesick. If you remember again, we read Acts 12, 12, that says when Peter escaped from prison, that he went to the house of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. And so we know that John Mark had a mom. She was in Jerusalem. That's where he grew up. That's where he was probably most comfortable, as most of us would be, around home. And so John Mark had been away from some, some time from his mom's house in Jerusalem, and maybe he just wanted to go back and to care for her and to be there with his mom. There, there could be more reasons than these five that are listed. Uh, we don't know the exact reason, but for whatever reason, Paul considered it this defection of fault. Paul considered whatever reason that John Mark may have cited or explained or, or why he left, whatever it was, we know that Paul didn't like it. And in fact, he didn't like it so much. If you turn forward to Acts chapter 15, verse 38, we read about a huge disagreement that happened between Paul and Barnabas about why it is that John Mark left or what they should do about it. Should they take him with them again because he bailed out the first time. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, this would be John Mark, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark, it would be John Mark, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And so we know that for whatever reason that John Mark left, Paul deemed it to be not a good one. It wasn't a good reason in his mind and in his view, so much so that he parted with Barnabas, who was his real partner and colleague in ministry, and took with him Silas in one direction while Barnabas took John Mark with him in another direction. It's a sad place in church history where we see a sharp disagreement. A lot of churches come to this passage, which we'll be there maybe in a few weeks and talk about it ourselves, about what do you do when you have a sharp disagreement with leadership? Well, they decided to part ways and that may have very well been the right decision for them. The good news is that this sharp disagreement eventually was resolved and many years later, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 11, many years later after this happened, he said, 2 Timothy 4.11, get Mark, that would be John Mark, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. So somewhere along the way, John Mark came with them, John Mark left them, the next time they went out, they split ways, and then later in his ministry, Paul said, you know what, John Mark's a good guy. You can actually bring him now because he has been resourceful to me, maybe as he grew and matured in his own life and ministry. Somewhere along the way, John Mark had proved his faithfulness and was restored in a right relationship with Paul, who appreciated his work in the ministry. But sometimes things don't work out according to plan. That's what we're going back now to our verse, Acts 13, 13, when John Mark left in this moment, it didn't go according to plan. Paul and Barnabas probably had no idea he was going to bail on them and just leave, and that's what happens in ministry, right? Disagreements occur, conflicts happen, people leave, pastors come and go, associate pastors come and go. 
missionaries come and go. There are all kinds of reasons behind why they come and go. Sometimes it's doctrine. Sometimes it's philosophy of ministry. Sometimes it's sinful conflict. And sometimes it's just a personality difference. They just don't gel well together. And we need to remain flexible while at the same time seeking to honor God in all of our working relationships, especially within the church. But no matter how difficult the trial may be, the point I'm trying to make is the mission must go on. No matter who's with you, no matter who's going to continue with you, if God's called you, you continue on. And don't let that be a discouragement to you when others fall behind or they decide to go somewhere else and do something somewhere else. You've got to continue the mission that God's called you to. And Paul and Barnabas on this trip at this time certainly understood that, that the mission must go on. Well, now that we've seen the defection of John Mark, let's look at number two for our passage this morning, the edification of Pisidian Antioch. Again, it's not the Antioch in Syria, it's in Pisidia, so we're calling it the Pisidian Antioch. That's where they're going, up in the mountains. And so your next blank says, from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, verse 14, but they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Well, first again, we're seeing they're going from Perga to this Antioch. And with John Mark gone, Paul and Barnabas continued with the mission. They may be discouraged, but they're not deterred. They may be disappointed, but they're not distracted. They may be displeased, but they're not dissuaded. They will come back to Perga later and spend more time ministering there on their return journey. But some commentators hypothesize that if Paul indeed did have malaria, then it would have been better for his health to move from the lower coastal lands where Perga was located up to the cooler mountain regions where Pisidian Antioch was located, some 3,600 feet above sea level. And this elevation and cooler air may have been needed to help aid Paul in his recovery. And so we see they move from Perga to Antioch. Your next blank says, from reading of the scriptures to encouragement from the scriptures. Verse 15, from the reading of the scriptures to the encouragement of the scriptures. So they finally arrive in this Antioch there in Pisidia. And what happens in verse 15, after the reading, they, they go to the synagogue and sat down into 14. 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. All right, so we see the, the order of service, just so you get a little bit more information, the order of a typical service in a first century synagogue would have included the recitation of the Shema. The Shema, it's a Hebrew word for the word hear. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, when the passage says, hear, O Israel, or in Hebrew, Shema, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. That would be recited in a first century synagogue as part of the order of service. And then there would also be a prayer. And the scripture reading would always come from the law, and a second scripture reading would come from the prophets. And then there would be a sermon. A rabbi or somebody capable would then give commentary or some type of a discussion about what was just read, and then there would be a benediction. 
Now, again, the reading from the law would take place from the Pentateuch, which would be the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And then a second reading would take place from the prophets, which would be from any one of the prophets that would be found in the rest of the Old Testament canon. In this particular case, the local leaders of the synagogue must have taken note that Paul and Barnabas were with them, and they may have even heard about Paul, who was a scholar in his own right, trained uh, trained under Gamaliel. And at this point, Paul and Barnabas were invited to share a word of encouragement, which would have been to some degree based on the passages, the one from the law and the prophets that would have just been read. Isn't it interesting how God just sovereignly arranged this unique circumstance and now the door is open wide for a gospel opportunity. And when Paul and Barnabas finished this first missionary journey and reported back to the church in Antioch, in Syria, God, he, they said that God had opened a door for them, a door of faith. God had opened a door for them, a door of faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 9, we're talking about open doors now, how they, God opened a door for them in Antioch. 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, a wide door, for effective work was open for me and that there were many adversaries. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul stated, when I came to Troas years later to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was open for me in the Lord. You, you never know when a door may be open for you to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet you must do this with gentleness and respect. What we're saying here is that this, this first of all, we're just saying the phrase open doors, which Paul uses in Acts 14 to refer to what happened to this trip and some of those other passages I read, that the phrase open doors in the Bible refers to gospel opportunities to preach the word. In the scripture, open doors is not used as it might be in today's language of just making a decision. You know, a lot of times we'll say, well, praying if God may open a door for me to get that job or God may open a door for us to move out of the state of California. He didn't. He closed that door. Just so you know. All right. There you go. Just make sure you're with me. He closed that one. But, it, you know, you keep thinking he's opened a door for me to do this and open the door for me to do that. In the scripture, just being biblical, open doors has to do with sharing the gospel. God opened a door in this particular moment where Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch there in Pisidia and they read some passages of scripture from the Old Testament and they look at Paul and Barnabas and say, hey, you guys want to say anything? I mean, how open is that? How cool is that that they're just sitting there and their door is now wide open that you could drive a Mack truck through it. They have an opportunity. The scripture's been read, which also shows that Paul would have mastered the scripture because while we don't know what scripture was read, you better bet Paul was going to take them from whatever was read and he's going to take them straight to the cross. And that's what we're going to see as we continue our time here. But we're just saying that Paul was ready when the door was open. He walked through it. He was faithful to do exactly what God called him to do. And it's just a reminder that what are you going to do? When the doors open right before you, are you ready? Are you looking for open doors to share the gospel? Are you praying for opportunities to share the gospel? Are you taking those opportunities when they open up right in front of you? What do you do with those open doors for the gospel. 
Well, we'll look and see what happens next. You know what Paul's going to do. Your next blank says, from the Jews to the Gentiles. So this moment, Paul stood up, verse 16, and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul stood up and motions with his hand. He's got something to say. And notice how he addresses the synagogue here. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so Paul is addressing both Jews and Gentiles. Paul is, is addressing the Jews clearly when he uses the terminology men of Israel. And then the reference after that when he says you who fear God, this would be a broader reference to everyone else. Paul continues in the pattern of addressing the Jew first. And if there are Jews present there, he wants to start where they are. And then he always moves quickly to include the Gentiles in his message as well. And the the God-fearers here that's mentioned in this verse is, again, a common reference to Gentiles who were already interested in learning something about the God of the Bible. They may have already been converted. They might be a proselyte. They may have already come into Judaism to some degree. We saw that with Cornelius. He was a man who feared God. And while he didn't follow all of the customs of the Jews, there was something going on in his heart where some of these Gentiles were coming into the fold. And so Paul simply commands his audience to listen. In other words, he's got something to say. It's his moment to step up to the plate and to deliver God's message to them. And so what we see now in verses 17 through 41 is Paul's longest recorded sermon in the Bible. Now, this is not Paul's first sermon, for he's already been preaching regularly ever since he was converted. He, He preached in Damascus. He preached in Arabia. He preached in Jerusalem. He preached in Tarsus. He preached in Antioch back in Syria. And now we we don't have a fully recorded sermon from those other places until now. So we've, we've heard him proclaiming the word of God and refuting others. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, now we have the content of his sermon. And, and the main sermons that we've seen so far up through the book of Acts, just to remind you, we've seen Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We've seen Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, which led to his own martyrdom. We saw Philip's sermon preaching in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And now this is Paul's first recorded sermon here in Acts chapter 13. This sermon can be broken up into three sections. We'll look at the first section this morning with the rest of our time. And then next week, we'll look at the second section. In our third week, we'll look at the third section as we dissect Paul's first and his longest sermon. So here's the sermon again could be broken up into the anticipation and preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That's what we're looking at today, verses 17 through 25. Next week, we'll see the rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in verses 26 through 37. And then our third week, we'll look at the application, the appeal, and the response to Paul's sermon in verses 38 through 52. So you could say in some ways, we're kicking off a three-part series of Paul's sermon. A lot of it this week is giving our introduction to the sermon and then that first section of the sermon and so this is what we're looking at again for the rest of our time and it's really about Paul presenting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and as a skilled communicator Paul knew that he needed to start with his audience and to get their attention in order that he could now move forward to preach Christ and so in order to do that he takes them down memory lane of Israel's history. 
So let's examine the first part again of his sermon. Number three for this particular sermon, if you will, the proclamation of the Apostle Paul, verses 17 through 25. And then we're going to look at your next blank that says, God brought Israel out of Egypt. God brought Israel out of Egypt. So Paul begins his sermon right there, verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So in one sweeping verse, just just verse 17, he covers a lot of ground. Paul tells us a great deal about the people of Israel. The first thing that Paul tells us is that God chose the people of Israel. The people of Israel did not come to God on their own. They did not come to God out of their depravity. God chose them. God made them a great nation. And the, the, the first thing that Paul tells us is God chose the people of Israel. He says that he chose our fathers. This would most definitely be a reference to the patriarchs that God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's significant to understand that God chose each one of those patriarchs. Let me just review that with you quickly. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we see where God chose Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know from our study in Genesis that it was out of the people in the Near East, out of all the people there in the Near East, God chose Abraham. God chose Abram, who became Abraham. He chose him out of the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he brought him to the land of Israel. And God told Abraham that he would have more descendants than there were stars in the heavens and sand on the seashore. And then we know that after God chose Abraham and he came, then we know the second patriarch is that God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Chose Isaac over Ishmael. Remember that uh, Abraham was married, had Sarah, his wife. They were, they were prophesied they would have a child. They decided to do it their own way. Sarah gave her maidservant to Abraham to marry Hagar, and they had Ishmael. And then later that caused a fuss between Sarah and uh, Hagar and their children, Ishmael and Isaac. So in Genesis chapter 21, verse 10, so she said to Abraham, this is Sarah, deciding she no longer wants Hagar and Ishmael in the house. She said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, listen to your wife. It's not how he said it, but it's basically what he said. He's like, God said to Abraham, maybe you just need to hear that this morning. You're a husband. You haven't been listening to your wife. God said to you, listen to your wife. All the wives are like, yeah, you're listening to the pastor. But God, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So we're just saying, just, just go here with me. God chose Abraham out of all the people in Ur of Chaldeans. Then God chose specifically Isaac over Ishmael. And then God specifically chose Jacob over Esau. 
And we know that familiar passage of Malachi chapter one, verses two through three, where he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So we understand here that God did choose Abraham. He did choose Isaac. He did choose Jacob over Esau, and that's what Paul's referring to, just reminding them all in one verse that God chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, and he made the people great during their stay of Egypt. So we know that it was Jacob's son, Joseph, who had a dream, was later went to Egypt, became the ruler of the land, second under Pharaoh, and in the midst of a famine, brought all of his family, all of his brothers, and their father, uh, Jacob, who's now called Israel, brought them all to Egypt, and they they landed in the, uh, the best area of the land, the land of Goshen. And then you remember that another Pharaoh came to power and enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. And even during a very difficult time of Israel's history, notice again that God made the people great. That's what verse, uh, this verse is saying. Here we're, verse 17, he says, during their stay in the land of Egypt, before that it says he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now, you, you would think he could have said all the hard things that happened, right? Man, they were, in, they were slaves. They had to make uh, the pyramids. They, they, they had to make bricks with no straw. There was all this difficult, they were taking lashes on their back. But the emphasis God gives is during their stay in the land of Egypt, they were made great. And of course, we get the little bit of that from uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. It says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And so the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And then the end of verse 17 says, it's with an uplifted arm. This means with power and authority, God delivered the Israelites from Egypt by the hand of Moses There were 10 plagues, and after the 10th plague, Pharaoh let God's people go. And after the Israelites departed from Egypt in haste, Pharaoh had second thoughts and pursued the Israelites in his chariots of war, but God parted the Red Sea and defeated Pharaoh's army. So all that's included in verse 17, reminding the Israelites from where they have come. And then that leads us to verse 18. God brought, your next blank, God brought Israel out of the wilderness. So again, just a summary of Old Testament Jewish history. Verse 18 reads, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, the way this is written, there are some translations that debate back and forth whether when verse 18 says, he put up with them, should it be translated as he put up with them as to bear with someone's manner or mood, or if the word put up with them could be translated as carried them, as the note in my Bible says. So if you look at verse 17, you, or verse 18, you probably have a note where it says he put up with them, and then there's a little one if you have an ESV after the word with, and if you go to the bottom of your page, it says some manuscripts uh, translate that basically, he carried So there's a question here, translation challenge. Does it mean he put up with them or does it mean he carried them? Okay, so we have, it it, it could be potentially either way. The word, if he carried them, the reason some say it could be he carried them because the same word is translated that way in Deuteronomy 131, which says, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that, uh, that you went with him to this place. So let me, let me call upon a commentator to help us out, all right? I'm a, I call upon John MacArthur, all right? 
Not, just really isn't that big of a deal, but he just says in his commentary, he says that the manuscript evidence is equally divided between the two. Did he put up with them or did he carry them? That's what we're asking. He says the evidence is divided pretty equally between the two. And then he says, indeed, both are true. God did put up with Israel in the wilderness and he also carried them through the wilderness. God put up with them in their sin and rebellion. God was faithful to keep his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was faithful to work through Moses time and time again to bring Israel back to repentance and to trust in the Lord. And at the same time, God also carried Israel through the wilderness. He put up with them and he carried them. He provided manna. He provided quail. He provided water. He provided victory over their enemies. In fact, the, 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 the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 5, it says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. So God carried them through with his provision. And either way, God was committed to his people. He did not abandon them. He did not forsake them. He did not disown them. He comforted them when needed. He carried them when needed. He, con he, he confronted them when needed. And all of this, God does for us today, right? He, he comforts us. He confronts us. He also provides for us what we need when we need it. And all we know is that God is the one who ultimately brought them through the wilderness. That's verse 18. And then in verse 19, your next blank says, God brought Israel into Canaan. He brought them into Canaan after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan. Verse 19 says, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And so Paul discusses how God brought Israel into the promised land in order to do uh, that they had to destroy seven nations that were all in the land of Canaan. Interesting, right? You might have forgotten. You, you probably do there a lot there, but there's seven specific nations that are identified here that Paul's talking about. He's referencing Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses one through two, that tells us exactly who these seven nations were. Deuteronomy seven, one through two says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations are more numerous and more mighty to you, mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and you shall show no mercy to them. So each one of these seven nations that I just mentioned, each one of them proved to be pagan nations who had rebelled against the living God. They defied God. They committed grievous sin. They were all idolaters. And so this conquest into the land of Canaan was to be a picture of God's holiness and it's our responsibility to pursue this same picture of holiness at any cost and that's correlated in 2 Corinthians 6 16 through 18 when Paul writes what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God 
As God said, I will make them my, my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you. Then I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and my daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is a picture, again, of Israel coming into Canaan and being separate from all of the other pagan nations. So these seven nations are all wiped out and God's people and the people of the world have nothing in common. There is no agreement between the temple of God or idols. We're, we're called to be separate from the world. We're to touch no unclean thing in Christ we have been welcomed into God's family and have been adopted as his sons and his daughters. And so as Israel finished the conquest and they came into the promised land, at the end of that time, Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45 says, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers not one of their enemies those seven nations not one of their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass and so God fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham. God brought the Israelites into the promised land. The Lord gave them victory over all the enemies and they took possession of the land and they settled there. All of the promises of God came to pass. So, so Paul, he's just building. He's preaching about the history of Israel in the Old Testament. We're now up to verse 20 where we then read about how God brought Israel through the time of the judges. God brought Israel through the time of the judges. Verse 20, all this took place. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And so when Paul says this all took place over 450 years, that would be a reference to 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then about 10 years for the conquest. So 450 again, 400 in Egypt, 400 in the wilderness, about 10 years it would have taken when they crossed over into Canaan and defeated their foes and then came to the end of the book of Joshua about 10 years. And throughout this entire period, God showed his power and his care and his faithfulness to Israel. And despite Israel's disobedience, God continued to give the people spiritual leadership. And this spiritual leadership at this time, after Joshua goes off the scene, came in the form of the judges. There were six minor judges and six major judges, and this all culminated with Samuel the prophet. And even though at the time of the judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes, God kept his promise to his people, and God called Samuel to serve him as a prophet and as a priest. And Samuel's spiritual leadership bridged the gap between the time of the judges and the time of the kings of Israel. Samuel provided leadership for the Israelites who rejected God as their king, and they begged God for a human king. And that brings us up to verse 21. Your next blank says, God brought Israel a king. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So God appointed Saul. He's a son of Kish. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He was appointed by God to be Israel's king. Interestingly enough, did you know this? The apostle Paul's Hebrew name was what? Saul. He was also from the tribe of 
Benjamin. So there's some similarities here. You had Saul, who was a Benjamite, who was a king. Then you have Saul, who was a Benjamite, who was a lead um, rabbi or Hebrew in the, in the Jewish sect of, of, of uh, I mean, they become legalistic, but they were both leaders. And, and, and while King Saul was a proud, self-willed, rebellious leader, finally, Saul became Paul in the Bible and became a humble, resilient leader for the gospel. And so Israel needed to be careful what they asked for, for, by the way, because when they did ask and beg for a king, God gave them exactly what they asked for to their own detriment. Then your next blank says, God brought Israel another king. He brought them another king. So Saul didn't work out. That lasted 40 years. That was a disaster. And then we see in verse 22 that God brings another king. And when he had removed him, that would be King Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So Saul had lost his kingship and the possibility of any dynasty None of his sons would ever become king, not even Jonathan, who seemed to be a pretty good guy. He totally favored David, even in their friendship as a boy, and was willing to to understand that God's plan would go along with David. None of his sons, uh, Saul's sons, would become king. And so God directed the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse in Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16, and he anointed David as king over Israel. And this led to a direct prophecy that the scepter would never depart from Judah. So again, remember Saul was from Benjamin. He was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. And we know that the line of Christ would never come through the line of Benjamin, but through Judah. So that's why the prophet Samuel appointed Jesse, uh, his son uh, Jesse in Bethlehem, by the way, in Bethlehem, where David was to become king over Israel. And this led again to that direct prophecy that the scepter would never depart from Judah. It would not be Saul, who was from, ben- from uh, the tribe of Benjamin, but it would be David who would be that forerunner of the messianic king. It would be David from the tribe of Judah who was called a man after God's own heart. And while we know David wasn't perfect, namely his sin with Bathsheba, also when he numbered the armies of Israel to see how many he had, he certainly had some pitfalls where he fell into, but overall, David, while not perfect, David contrasted Saul being obedient, repenting when he did sin, and David was committed to carrying out all of God's plan in God's way. And it was David who would fulfill God's will. And I love that about David, right? We, we love David because he's just a man like us who, who has many gifts and talents, but also struggled. And yet we see something about his heart, something in scripture about he's a man after God's own heart. It was David who prayed that familiar prayer in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, where he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David was a man who was constantly pursuing God through his word. Psalm 119, 97, David wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. David spent time with the Lord. David cried out to the Lord. David said in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell 
in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It doesn't take much scripture reading to understand why David truly was a man after God's own heart. And then Paul now brings this whole conversation. He's been building, building, building for this one moment in the sermon to say, hey, it's time to go New Testament, all right? We've we got the Old Testament history, the most important part of it at this moment wrapped up. Now we gotta go to Jesus, which is your next blank. God brought Israel Jesus. And you can see, again, Paul's methodology. Hey, God brought you Abraham. God brought you Isaac. God brought you Jacob. God brought you all of these judges. And he brought you Samuel. And he brought you a king when, he asked, when you asked for it. He brought David. But most important of all, verse 23 says... Of this man's offspring, that would be David's offspring, God has brought to us, to, excuse me, brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so Paul's whole point in this message is to unveil Jesus as the Messiah. He is using some of the most familiar places of the Old Testament history to point to Christ. And one commentary I read makes this clear. Not only does the Old Testament history point to Christ, but so does the Old Testament prophecy. Revelation 19.10 says that Jesus was the seed of the woman who bruised the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. He was the virgin-born son whose name was God with us, Isaiah 7.14. He was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Isaiah 9.6, Micah 5.2, foretold that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2 verse 1 tells us that the Messiah was to be a descendant of Abraham from Genesis 12, 2 through 3. Jesus was also to be a descendant of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus was a priest of the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6, 20. Centuries before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9 predicted the Messiah to do exactly that. Psalm 41, 9 predicted Judas's betrayal and Zechariah 11, 12, the exact amount of money that he would receive for doing it. The fulfillment of all of those prophecies and dozens and dozens of more provide overwhelming proof that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed Israel's prophesied, long-awaited Messiah. God has done it. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. And then we see, and he's going to continue on here, but in H, your last blank there, says God brought Israel a prophet to point to Jesus. Verses 24 and 25, and then we'll wrap it up until next week. But he says before his coming, that would be Jesus, before his coming, John, and this would be a reference to John the Baptist, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist was a fulfillment of prophecy himself. Isaiah 40, verses three through five, says a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill shall be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and rough places smooth. He's saying that basically when a king would come through a terrain in his entourage, he would be, uh, there would be people going before them making it all 
a smooth path. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. All, all the glory of the Lord shall be revealed all, and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That, that's John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, again, pointing to John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist said himself in Matthew 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist was one of the most godly and yet one of the most humble men who ever lived. John chapter 1 verses 19 to 23 says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In other words, John the Baptist was so powerful in his preaching and the people who were listening to him knew that there were some prophecies being fulfilled. And so they just asked him plainly, who are you? Could you maybe be the Christ? And he says, I'm not the Christ. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? They knew that an Elijah-like prophet would come before the Messiah. And he said, I am not. He said, are you the prophet? That was a reference to the Messiah. He answered, no. So they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist said this, he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John the Baptist would have been well known to Paul's listeners, since we now are hearing of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, whose ministry from Acts 19, we know it spread already into this area of Asia Minor. So they would have been familiar with John the Baptist. So Paul's now moving from people from the past to someone who would have been alive in the same lifetime with those listening. And he said, hey, John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah pointing to Jesus as the Christ. It was John the Baptist who, it was to introduce Jesus to us. A prophet, again, who lived at the same time as these contemporaries and proclaimed these things to be true. And so what we've learned this morning is that the mission must go on. And your preaching must go on. It must cover parts of the Bible, but you must get to Christ. If you're preaching and you're not getting to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're missing out on what the gospel's all about. And if you're evangelizing and you're talking to people in today's culture and you're not bringing them full circle to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're missing out on what it is that God's called you to do. We're talking this morning about how the mission must go on. And there's many people have gone before us. John the Baptist himself was beheaded, but the mission must go on. Stephen was stoned to death but the mission must go on. James was killed by the sword, but the mission must go on. Paul was pursued for death many times and left dead, but the mission must go on. Paul had already in this trip faced opposition from the false prophet there in Cyprus, but the mission must go on. Paul may have been sick with malaria, but the mission must go on. Paul was certainly discouraged that John Mark defected, but the mission must go on. When you're passionate about something, you carry it with you to the grave. Hudson Taylor was passionate about taking the gospel to China. David Livingston was passionate about taking the gospel to Africa. Jim Elliott was passionate about taking the gospel to Ecuador. What are you passionate about this morning? 
in this world, you will face opposition, you will face sickness, you will possibly even face great persecution, but are you ready to go on? God is calling you on, and in order to go on, you first must know him. And you must first want to pursue him, like we talked about in Philippians 3, to know him and the power of his sufferings and the power of his glory all comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after we sing our last song this morning, if you're here and you're saying, well, how can I go on? We would love to counsel with you and help you. We'll have a few people standing right up here at the right side of the stage as I see it to your left as, as the service closes. We'd love to talk to you about how you can go on. You can only go on first by coming to Christ and then by continuing with Christ. May God help us as a church continue to carry the light of the Lord Jesus as we continue on. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to summarize an important aspect of the redemptive Old Testament history, patriarch after patriarch, prophet after prophet, all pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful, God, just to have a model in the preaching that we've seen throughout the book of Acts from Peter to Paul of preaching Christ. May we be reminded of whatever audience we face, whatever individual that we engage, that we have a responsibility to go on, to go on all the way to Christ, to go on in the midst of any adversity, in the midst of any difficulty. Our mission must not die our mission is an eternal mission all the way until Christ comes back that we would continue to proclaim both in deed and in word about the love of Christ that can be found only by faith in turning from all sin and turning to the sacrifice that was sufficient to appease the wrath of God that this morning we could be born again. We could be those with deep conviction to go on. There's some that are discouraged here today Encourage us, God, through your word to go on. If there's some of us who are frightened today, God, just encourage us through your word to go on. If there's some who have even maybe defected today, as we saw with John Mark, I pray that you would restore us into a right relationship with you that we could go on. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. May you be glorified in our hearts as we desire to walk with you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.